Bokertov. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Bokertov, and welcome to our Aliyah day. Glad to have you with me. We are in the Parasha Yitro, and we are looking at the uh, the fifth Aliyah. We're a little ahead of schedule, only because in this particular Parasha, the third and the fourth Aliyot were extraordinarily uh, short. So it pushed us forward a little bit into the fifth Aliyah. Normally, the fifth Aliyah would be tomorrow, manana, but it is oi, it is today. So we are looking at, uh, of course, Parasha Yitro from the book of Shemot, where we are presently in chapter 19. The fifth Aliyah begins in chapter 7. We're going to take a, a step back to uh, the fourth Aliyah just for a moment and look for a look at a couple of things. Hope you're having a beautiful, wonderful, and magnificent day. First, I want to look in the Art School Humash. If you have your Art School Humash, we are on page 401. And there's just a simple statement here from uh, Orhaim that says <clears throat> that uh, talking about the children of Israel coming to the wilderness of Mount Sinai, coming uh, in front of uh, the mountain, it says that um, uh, they encamped in the wilderness, and it says the people encamped not only in a literal, but also in a figurative wilderness, meaning, as Orhaim brings out, that they humbled themselves in submission to the word of God, for the words of Torah remain only with the humble. wanted to point that out because what we see is if that is uh, true, then the opposite must be true, that if one is resistant to Torah, then it is obviously a sign of arrogance. We've got to get down to the root cause. What is the root cause? If we have a situation in which we find ourselves resistant to God's commandments, then that means that we lack humility, that we have a problem with uh, arrogance. I also want to mention something going back, just uh, again, going back a little bit in Parsha Yitro, to something that I've been meaning to bring out uh, in the last few aliyot, to chapter 18 and verse 20, where it says, And you shall make known to them the path in which they should go. So going again, going back to chapter uh, 18 and verse 20, you shall make known to them uh, the path in which they should go. It says here in the Rabbi Monk's commentary um, that the advice follows that of cautioning concerning the decrees and teachings. It implies um, some other duties as brought down by Rabbi Yosef. And uh, he's talking about this in the Talmud and Bava. Matziah 30, 30b, um, that our duty is to love our fellow man, right? And this is always a good reminder because we, we should always remember uh, what we do, uh, of course, uh, but more importantly, the more important question I should say is why we do what we do. So once we uh, have it firmly in our minds of why we do what we do, then we have to ask the question, um, how do we bridge the gap between why we do what we do and what we do? So what we do, let me just break this down. What we do is we live as Torah observant 
Jews who believe in the Messiah, right? We have we, what we do is an authentic Judaism uh, based and centered upon Mashiach Yeshua. That's what we do. Why we do it is because that's who he was. Why we do it is because that's the faith of Messiah. We're simply following him. And that's the true religion. That's the true faith. It's not man-made. It's not uh, constructed by, by anyone other than the Messiah. So the question becomes, how do we do it? How do we, how do we connect our why to our what? So the answer of how is chesed. It's love. And so this is the, the, the path that we should go. The path, the, the how we go from why to our what is, is through Hesed. So it says, Indeed, the path mentioned here is the same as Derek Etz Chahayim, the way to the tree, the tree of life from Genesis 3.24. And it's Derek Hashem, the way of Hashem. So the way to the tree of, of life and the way of Hashem are the same, and that is the way of love. It says in both instances, the path leading to God and eternal life is the way of love and justice, of morality and good deeds. Accordingly, this phrase concerns all moral obligations to include charity, visiting the sick, burying the dead. Okay, So when we're talking about connecting our, our why to our what, how do we go from why we do what we do to what we do? The answer is love. We have to have hesed. We have to have charity. We have to have generosity. We have to visit the sick. We have to be compassionate towards people. This is why the Apostle Shaul wrote in his, in his letter that if you have all of the good deeds and you have all the what, you know, if you have a magnificent what, if you're a super Jew and you can speak Hebrew fluently and you can say all the brachas and you can cant and you can your, your seat seats hang down so low and your tefillin is so big, but if you don't have love, it's like a, a, an irritating, clanging symbol. Without love, none of that uh, matters. Uh, this is uh, one of the uh, ideas behind... Uh, the garment of the high priest, he wore a robe of the ephod. And uh, at the bottom of the robe of the ephod were um, little brass bells. And uh, in between each brown, uh, brass bell was a crocheted, I guess you'd say crocheted uh, pomegranate. Like a little, you know, like a little pomegranate hanging down. Why? Because if you don't have the pomegranate, which represents, the pomegranate represents Torah, represents Hesed. If you don't have the pomegranate hanging down, the, the little bells are going to clang up against each other. And it's just going to sound like a bunch of metal hitting each other. But when you have the pomegranate, when you have the love, when you have the sweetness of Torah hanging down between each bell, then the bell is able to make a pretty little tingle sound. So this is the message. This is the way. So we should just remember... Uh, that it's a package deal. That's the thing. Uh, in the Western mindset, in the, the Greek mindset, uh, we compartmentalize things. We can have faith without obedience. We can have obedience without faith, uh, etc. But in the kingdom of God, it's a package deal. You're not able to have faith without obedience. And the idea that you would have obedience without faith is ludicrous. Everything has to work together. So, 
you we have to have a complete package in order to make everything function the way it's supposed to function. Moreover, I want to go back to verse 6 now in chapter 19, where it talks about us being a kingdom of priests. Something else that I wanted to mention as well, this also comes from Rabbi Monk's uh, commentary. When he writes, uh, A kingdom of priests, he says, This lofty title does not confer any privileges... It does not confer any privileges or special advantages of the Jewish people. Let me read this again in case we're confused. It says, the fact that we're a kingdom of priests, this lofty title that given to us, does not confer any privileges or special advantages of the Jewish people. I've said this repeatedly because it's a it's a plague, I think, uh, amongst um, Jewish people in general, but but Messianics in particular, chosen does not mean special. All right, we are all special. You're special, like everybody else. Okay, chosen does not mean special. It does not mean we have extra privileges. It says here, rather, it requires them to fulfill a specific function, which is what? To become a kingdom of ministers for all mankind, Rabbi Monk says. The minister, or Cohen, is described by the prophet Malachi as one who, by his word and example, spreads God's knowledge and faith. He appears as an angel of God. And he goes on to say, this is Israel's destiny among the nations. Israel is God's permanent messenger of truth and morality. So it's not about special privilege. It's not about a place of honor at the table. It's not about people swooning when they find out that you grew up in a Jewish home. It's not about any of that. It's about leading people to Hashem. We are chosen in order to bring people under the wings of the Shekinah. Our chosenness is the reality of our mission. And that's so important for us to know. Because otherwise, we can become arrogant and conceited, and we can believe that somehow we are above other people. And somehow, that uh, this is where the whole concept, by the way, of What's well, uh, of 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 a, of a Gentile should remain a Gentile and never become a Jew? Part of the psychology of that, first of all, it has no basis. It has absolutely no basis in Scripture. It has absolutely no basis in Jewish literature. It has absolutely no basis in history. At no time were we running around trying to bring Gentiles in the kingdom without making them Jews. Okay, it doesn't exist, but there's a psychology around that, and part of the psychology is how can you become special like me? I'm special, and if I make you special, then I'm seemingly less special, and that's because we've lo- we have lost the intention and the meaning of what it means to be chosen. Being chosen doesn't mean we get the seat at the head of the table. Being chosen doesn't mean that we get people to say, oh my goodness, look at you. Being chosen means that our we're chosen to bring people in. We're fishers of men. Being chosen means that you can hand it a fishing rod. 
a fishing pole. Being chosen means that you're the one that gets to put the bait on the hook, so to speak. That's all it means. So listen, something else I want to cover. Um, uh, going back to, uh, again, this topic of you shall be for me a kingdom of priests. Something that um, Rabbi Abu Khatzera brings down in his, his book, uh, Bituke Hotam, really addresses um, a straw, what I, I, I guess I would have referred to as a straw man uh, argument. And this is something that many of you already know, but some of you watching may not, may not realize. Because somebody asked me this question just the other day. They sent in an uh, a, uh, email or, or whatever to our site, and uh, it was a Christian person, and they're trying to figure things out, and, and their question was completely understandable. It was uh, a question often asked, but, it, but it, the, the, the premise is what I want to address. So the question was this. So you believe in Messiah Yeshua, but, you know, you uh, follow Torah, right? Um, and the answer was yes, of course. So, so, so how are you saved? Uh, something to that effect. And so the premise of the question is that Jews somehow believed, uh, either in ancient history or today still, or both, that uh, we are quote-unquote saved by keeping Torah. And that, that is not true. It never has been true. It never has been true. Does that mean that there's not some uh, offshoot out there that, that, that kind of has that in their mind? Of course not. There's exceptions to everything. But talking about Judaism in general, <coughs> as, as the teachings of Judaism, is, isn't true. That is a Christian fabrication based on a, uh, a complete lack of knowledge going all the way back to the church fathers who were all Gentiles and basically either didn't know anything about Judaism or chose not to know or chose not to communicate it. Either way, it's a, based on a complete ignorance. Why do I say that? Because right here in Pituke Hotam, it says this statement. When it, talking about you shall be a kingdom of priests for me, it says... This is telling us that a prerequisite for keeping the Torah and the mitzvot, the mitzvot, is that one's body should be purified and clean of sin. This is Tehillim 34.15. So again, we've got to go back and look at the pattern. Prior to receiving the Torah... Prior to us going to Mount Sinai and receiving the commandments of God, what happened? Several things happened. First and foremost, we were, we were set free from Egypt ultimately by the blood of the Lamb. Number one thing happened. Number two, we went to the Red Sea. What was that representing? It represented a mikvah, water immersion. Then we come to uh, Mount Sinai and each individual person is told, to uh, go through some conversion rituals, which we'll cover in just a second. And and what ha what's going on here? We have not yet received the Torah. But we've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. We've been immersed in water. Our minds and our hearts and our souls have been purified. Our sins have been forgiven. Why? Because all of that is a prerequisite, 
prerequisite for receiving the Torah. You see? Whereas in uh, modern theology, it's been taught erroneously to people that um, before we had the Torah, and now that the Lamb of God has come, we no longer need the Torah. It's the exact, uh, is the precise opposite of what God teaches. It's precise opposite of what the pattern shows. Precise opposite. It's the exact opposite of what it shows. And so I just wanted to bring this out that we, uh, when we're coming to receive the Torah, we're doing that because we have been forgiven. We're doing that because we have followed the prerequisite of being born again, made into a new creature. By the way, you can't even have the Torah unless you're a new creature anyway. Because the Torah is antithetical to the ways of the world. By the way, um, because many people watching here are familiar with the letters of Paul, and that's where 98 or 99% of the confusion comes from, is from his letters. But in one of his letters to the Corinthians, uh, to the, not the Corinthians, it was to uh, Colossia, he writes, and he's chastising the Gentiles, and he's saying, why are you re returning to the ways of the world? To the uh, teachings of, uh, of this age. Don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. And people read that, and because they have no understanding, they like, well, you see, he's, he's chastising them to, to, for returning to Torah. And that's absurd. Why? Because the, the Torah is Scripture, it's God's Word. And Scripture is, my friends, is not the ways of the world, right? I mean, just take a look around you. When we have people who don't even know what gender they are, that is not Torah. So if you're talking to Gentiles and you're saying, why are you going back to the ways of the world? That would be the opposite of Torah. Why are you leaving the Torah and going back to the ways of the Goyim? You see? It's very simple. So, <clears throat> looking at the fifth Aliyah, says here, verse 7, Moshe came and summoned the elders of the people and put before them all these words that Hashem had commanded him. The entire people responded together and said, Everything that Hashem has spoken we will do. Moshe brought back the words of the people to Hashem. And Adonai said to Moshe, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud of darkness, so the people will hear as I speak to you, and they will also believe in you forever. Listen to this. Let's go back and read that again. Moshe brought back the words of the people to Hashem, and Hashem said to Moshe, Hashem said to Moshe, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, okay, Hine, behold, I come to you in the thickness of cloud, so that, okay, so, so I'm coming to you in the thickness of cloud, and so he answers, why? Why am I coming to an, in a thickness of cloud? Why? So that the people will hear as I speak to you, and they will believe in you forever. Moshe related these words to the people of, of Hashem. So God tells Moses, listen, the reason I'm doing this, and I'm doing it in public, and I'm doing it with such uh, pomp and circumstance, you know, the... The sages say that when they looked up, they saw um, the four mighty war angels, Mikael, Gavriel, 
uh, Uriel and Raphael with their banners uh, hovering there uh, among the legions of God. Below them, ostensibly, were um, 600,000 angels. And then there was an additional 22,000 angels uh, to correspond to the 22,000 Levites who guard the Ark of the Covenant. And they saw the four general angels uh, above, uh, hovering above them. And then above those four, they saw this particular angel known as Noriel, who was above them. That's Memtet. And so, <clears throat> anyway, all this pomp and circumstance, Hashem says, why am I doing this with such elegance and such pomp? And the reason is, is because I want to make a point that I am talking to you in order that everybody will believe in you forever. So this brings us to a point from the art school Humash as it's made on page 403. And this is the reason why the Christian message as we know it and understand it today as it was created and developed in the 3rd and 4th century, a couple of hundred years after the Messiah and the Apostles existed, this new message developed, this new quote-unquote Christian message, which was not the message of Messiah, and that message is that Messiah came and did away with the Torah, he came and nullified the commandments, you know, he made all foods clean, which he never said that. By the way, uh, you might have heard me say this before, but if you're new to uh, watching uh, me or whatever, then this will be uh, hopefully helpful. But um, the phrase Yeshua made all foods clean is not in the Gospels. It is a parenthetical statement added by the translators. It does not exist in the original print. Um, so there's that. But how do we know 100% beyond any reasonable doubt that Yeshua did not make all foods clean? How do we know that 100% for, for sure? couple of things. First of all, to break the law is to sin. Okay? If he had made all foods clean, then he would have been uh, unilaterally erasing two whole chapters of Torah, one from the book of Leviticus and one from the book of Devarim. That's number one. Since we know that the Mashiach was sinless, obviously he can't break the law, otherwise he'd be a sinner and everybody's just wasting their time. That's number one. Number two, in Acts chapter 10, God is speaking to Kepha, and he says, rise and eat all these nasty things, all these, uh, this pig, these uh, worms, these uh, rats and snakes and so on. And Kepha says, I've never eaten anything impure or, or, or non-kosher. What's Kepha's problem? If the Mashiach made all foods clean, how come 15 years later, Kepha's still on a kosher diet? And he's the leader of everybody. All right, obviously. But here's the big one. Why, how do we know that uh, Yeshua did not make all foods clean? How do we know that for sure 100% without any, uh, beyond any reasonable doubt? The answer, it wasn't brought up at his trial. That's it. it. All they did at his trial is bring false witnesses. All they would have had to do is bring one person up, say this this guy right here, 
said uh, he make uh, all foods clean, that would not have been a false statement. According to Christians, it would have been a true statement, which would have nullified his messiahship right there on the spot. So since that didn't happen, we know it was a lie. But <clears throat> this is why the Christian message was doomed from the beginning. And I, by Christian message, I want you to be clear. I'm not talking about the message of Messiah. I'm talking about the Christian message, which was developed several hundred years later. Okay? Here's why it's doomed from out of the gate. The jockey fell off the horse the minute the gate opened. Here it is. Even if, this is the, from the art school Chumash to this particular verse, you shall believe in Moses forever. Okay? Even if an acknowledged prophet were to come and perform undeniable miracles to buttress his claim <coughs> that he had divine authority to contradict the teachings of Moses, his very claim to, su to supersede Moses would brand him a false prophet and he would be liable to the death penalty because Moshe's teachings are at the very foundation of Judaism. They are not open to dispute. Why are they not open to, to dispute? Because of this verse. In order to establish his credentials, the revelation at Mount Sinai was public so that faith in Moses would be beyond question. This is why, my friends, of all the books of the Bible that were debated to decide whether or not they are Torah. And by the way, who did that? It was the men of the Great Assembly. The men of the Great Assembly decided that your Bible is kosher. So again, as I've said before, for somebody who says, I don't believe in the, in the oral Torah, well, that's going to present a problem if you believe that your Bible is kosher. Because it was the oral Torah that told you that. Okay? But that, that, I digress. I digress. Let's not get off on that uh, very important topic. But here we have a situation where when we're going looking at the books of the Bible, the, the first five books of the Bible were never debated. Everybody accepted the first five books of the of, uh, Bible as Scripture. Why? Because it was witnessed by three million people in public. So, you know, no need to call in three million witnesses. Everybody knows that they're scripture. So this is a foundational moment where God is saying you should believe in these first five books, the Torah forever. They're not up to dispute. Even if I, and he says in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13, even if I send you a big prophet and he raises the dead even, but he tells you go step away from Torah, he's a false prophet. I did that to test you. So continuing on here, it says another function of the public revelation would be that once it became clear to the entire nation that God spoke to prophets, they would believe in the prophecies of Moshe. So we see here <coughs> that, um, you know, the entire idea that the Messiah would come and contradict Moses is right there in the Torah, right in the scripture in black and white, a deal breaker, uh, right off the bat. Right off the bat. You know, there are objections to Yeshua being the Messiah. Uh, I have many, many, I have several, I should say. Uh, probably half a dozen, if maybe, um, anti-missionary books. 
and I read them, and uh, on uh, a couple of points are interesting, then they require a little bit of uh, discussion. But by and large, uh, and I'm not just saying this, I mean, it really is true, most of the points of the anti-missionaries, um, that is Jewish people who, uh, who are whose purpose is to, is to um, try to come against the idea that, that Yeshua is the Messiah, and really what they're coming against is Jesus, the Christian Jesus, as the Messiah. Um, it's really uh, anti-Christian, which is not actually very relevant to us, but that's neither here nor there. But a lot of the objections are really kind of silly, actually. And they're really kind of childish in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm not just saying that to be mean. I'm really not. I'm just I'm saying intellectually, when you read the arguments, they're, they're, they're just so easily um, countered. But but the, the, what I really wanted to point out with that was that the main reason that um, our Mashiach has been so rejected uh, is because of this issue of non-observance. That's the real reason. And it's a shame because it's a complete lie. Um, but that's the real reason. Because there are other sects that have, um, you know, rabbis uh, that, that are passed away that they believe are, are the Messiah and of course they're not but they're not rejected uh, they're considered a legitimate Jewish sect even though you know they don't believe or don't agree or whatever but the, really what it boils down to the reason that Yeshua is, is so universally rejected the primary reason is because of the message he allegedly is teaching which of course is not the right message all right, one more thing. There's so much to cover, even though these aliyots are short. There's so much to cover um, in each space of time. But I want to cover one more thing um, as we are getting as we're getting ready to close today. <clears throat> so in the Kehol Tumash and the expanded version of Rashi's uh, Rashi's expanded version here, it says, "When God said, I will descend on Mount Sinai and give the people the Torah." It says here there was a prerequisite, okay, in addition to forgiveness of sins, something else happened that uh, when the Torah came. So again, what I'm about to read here, I want you to connect the dots and see the pattern. When Yeshua came, this happened. When the Torah came, this happened. Why? Because Yeshua is the Torah. So here it is. I, 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 God, will descend on Mount Sinai and give the people the Torah. In order for them all to experience this revelation fully, I will heal them of their infirmities. I will restore sight to the blind. I will give speech to the dumb. And I will restore hearing to the deaf. Then, deaf, sleek up. Then I will descend on Mount Sinai and the sight of all the people. So what we saw was the before the giving of the Torah, what we saw was that blind eyes were open, deaf ears were open, those who were mute were able to talk. So we see when Mashiach comes, or came, and he is the living Torah, what happened? He opened blind eyes, he opened deaf ears, he caused the mute to speak, and did even more than that. Why? Because it's a following a pattern. He's trying to show that I am bringing about the same illumination that you saw at Mount Sinai. I am those sapphire tablets restored. It says in the Midrash, one last thing, and then we'll conclude. The Midrash compares this sanctification, talking about when we came before the um, Mount Sinai and we're 
immersing and so on. It says the Midrash compares a sanctification to the preparation of a bride for her wedding day and notes that ve'kidashtam uh, and sanctify them has the same root of kiddushin, that is a spousal, that is the preparation for marriage. It involves, it involves an ethical sanctification, abstaining from sin, an unseemly behavior, as well as immersion in a ritual bath. The revelation was equivalent to the wedding of Hashem to the people of Israel. When we came to receive our Torah, it was as if God was coming together with us under the hoopah. Many people ask the question, if I have faith in the Mashiach and I believe with him in my whole heart, why do I need to go through the ritual of conversion? Now, this is a very interesting question. It's a very good question. Some people ask the question differently. They said, do I need to be converted in order to be saved? <clears throat> the answer can be a bit complicated because we're 2,000 years into a big mess of spaghetti theology. We have to go back in time 2,000 years and understand one important, crucial fact. And that is that when you went to the waters of the mikvah, to the, the, the baptismal pool, that was conversion, my friends. When you went into the water as a believer and you came up out of the water, you were born again a son of Abraham. You were created a new creature. You were a Jew in all respects. Okay, that's number one. But what I really want to focus on is this concept of if I have faith, why do I need to go to uh, the ritual conversion? Why do I need to go to the mikvah? And the answer is this. The mikvah, as we just read in Rabbi Monk's commentary, the mikvah is a chuppah. The mikvah is the chuppah. When you get engaged to someone, you're committed to that person. You love them. Once, once, if you're a woman and, and the man puts the, the, the engagement ring on your finger, neither you nor he are allowed to see anyone else. You're no longer going to go on a date with anybody else. Okay? Once that happens, you are sanctified to each other. However, you're not officially married. When does the official marriage happen? And when does real intimacy begin? When you go to the hoopah. And in this case, the hoopah is the mikvah. Why? Because the water represents Torah. We're under the canopy of Torah. So when we have faith in Mashiach, that's awesome. We're no longer uh, going out to, to dinner with other idols. Not with other idols. I shouldn't say other idols, but with idols. We're no longer going out to dinner with them. We have the true God. We have true, we have true Hashem. But our intimacy begins with Him when we go to the waters of the mikvah and we receive the fullness of the Torah. This is why Yeshua said in Matthew 7, 23, you have faith in me, but I don't know you. Why don't I know you? Because you never came into the waters of Torah. End of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, and awesome day. Please share this video. Do somebody a favor. Like it. Share it. Pass it around to the podcast too. Share it with somebody. Share it with a bunch of people. 
and uh, brighten their day. I hope you have a wonderful, amazing day. And with God's help, we'll see everybody tomorrow. Shalom, shalom.